So when I say I, I, I like to demystify value-based care, no, depending on the needs of the consumer, of your patient, there's very specific things they need to have a positive outcome or as positive an outcome as po possible. They're just different for different members. So that's why you need a trained clinician class who's interested in this kind of work. And, and the tough part is, Chris, is and curious, right? Like they're curious, how do I create this mechanism to understand how to get the resources I need? Because I can't just, I'm not making enough money as a fee-for-service behavioralist or primary care physician to fund all this stuff. I need somebody to help me fund it. But they'll only do that if I can really effectively use it as needed to help with the, the outcomes. Hello, and welcome to Meeting of the Minds with Wobot Health. I'm your host, Chris Hemphill, and I want to thank the Future of Mental Health for the podcast partnership that made this conversation possible. Today, we're asking the question, is value-based care living up to its promise? It's a tough and provocative question, and to help us with that, we've got David Wethington, who is Elevance Health's VP for Network and Value-Based Solutions. So everybody, let's welcome David. Thank you for having me, Chris. Thanks for being here, David. Now, with that question, though, around value-based care, I can point to, to many, many stories about positive outcomes in health care and population health equity that are made possible by the value-based care payment model. But at the same time, I can point to many organizations that have a foot in two canoes, one canoe being value-based care and the other being fee-for-service. However, with the MGA, MGMA reporting that only 5 to 15% of revenues come from value-based contracts, we know that one canoe is actually much larger than the other. So if you didn't glean it from his current title, David has considerable experience with value-based care. He's been a clinical psychologist before taking on the value-based health plan leadership roles at places like Johns Hopkins, Continuum Health, and Clover Health. He's going to help us explore what actually is the promise of value-based care, what stands in the way of meeting that promise, our role in growing value-based care initiatives in behavioral health in spite of these roadblocks, and the role of digital health in addressing high-needs populations. So before we get into it, David, am I missing anything? Is there anything else that you're hoping, like, when you decided that you wanted to come and have a conversation with us today, what are some other things that you might have been hoping that the audience would get out of our conversation? Um, well, you know, you mentioned that I was a clinician, a behavioralist early in my career. I, I think what I really was was focused on behavioral economics and just did old enough now that that wasn't really a, a common field back then. So I think I get excited by the topic of value-based care and the questions you're asking, because a lot of it is just how do we influence the way both both members and clinicians and health systems are making decisions and, and ultimately allocating resources, right? So that's, you know, I, I'm excited to dig into that a bit today. Well, uh, th thank you for sharing that background. I just want to dig into that a, uh, a little bit with you too, is that evolution from uh, uh, being a practicing uh, clinical psychologist to, to, to what you're doing today. So David, let's dive into to, to the basics here. What did lead you from clinical psychology to value-based care leadership today? Um, well, I think, you know, even before I had any concept of what population health was earlier in my career, I realized that the treating uh, clients one-on-one -on -one was, um, I didn't have the temperament for that, right? We'll say I have, I'll be generous and say I have functional ADHD, right? Which means I, I need to be involved in, in things that are a little bit uh, broader and faster moving. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to understand how I could take the education experience I had and impact broader populations, broader groups of people. So I'm, so my, my original transition from treating patients in a, in a traditional, you know, think Frazier, a traditional therapy setting, um, to beginning to work with managed care and with health plans with the old Cigna behavioral health you know, back 20 plus years ago, before we even really thought about whole health care and, and whatever. And, that, and that's where I began understanding the economics of, of healthcare much broader, how health systems were sort of the motivations for providers, but also, you know, and if there are clinicians on the call, I hate to say this, I was doing traditional utilization management. It was on the behavioral side, but 
inpatient prior authorization, outpatient prior authorization. So I also became really familiar with the administrative burdens of, of working with the traditional payers and, you know, Elevant, Cigna, United, uh, it, you know, all of us. You know, through sort of chance, I ended up working with some smaller early stage Medicare Advantage plans. And really, by definition, a Medicare Advantage plan holds a value-based contract with the government, right? I mean, it is a capitated value-based arrangement um, where your your success is dependent on, on performance, right? Through STARS, through risk adjustment, cost of care management, retention. So I, I got a really good grounding, I, I think, in, in the basic tenets of, of sort of population care and, and impacting physician and member behavior, uh, the incentives that work. And then as my career went on, I, you know, I began working in Medicaid and commercial as well um, and, and took what I really learned in, in Medicare Advantage, which was always sort of at the forefront of what we call value-based. You, you and I have had a chance to talk in the past. That's not my favorite term mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons, but what we call value-based. And, and, you know, I, after spending several years at startups, made the transition to Elevance with, with the belief and the goal of using their massive platform right, to, to, to bring what I've learned and what my really strong partners at Elevance, you know, want to, want to bring to the marketplace in terms of advancing whole health uh, or value-based care. Let's dig in a, a little bit deeper into that too. Uh, just curious about, you saw some promise in what was going on in these overall payment models and, and you had this healthcare economics lens that was really interesting to, the, interesting to, to this entire time. So how would you define value-based care uh, to, to help cut through the noise of how it's described in, in all these various ways and used as a buzzword over and over again. So I do actually think that the triple or quadruple aim has some logic to it in terms of, you know, what is valuable to a consumer is that they get what they need at the time they need it for a price that is reasonable, right? We, we've now kind of brought in physician satisfaction and that's a component of it, but that also is sort of separate and distinct, right? How we create value in terms of a career and a in a discipline for providers is slightly different than what would constitute effective and valuable care for for the actual consumer who who's paying for care. So I believe those things. Now I think if you're a clinician, it is how do I access the resources and the knowledge right? And there's a number of ways to do this we'll get into to meet my consumer, my patient where they're at, right? And make available what they need. Sometimes that is sick care, right? Appropriate diagnosis, appropriate specialist referral. Sometimes that is awareness and acknowledge of issues outside of of sick care, right? I I mean, a recent study I saw from the um, Primary Care Collaborative, uh, which is a a group out of DC, was that roughly 85% of a member's health experience is based on factors that are not genetic or biological, right? And, and so I think from the payer side, value-based care broadly is how do we make knowledge and resources available to clinicians to use to meet the needs of consumers, right? I mean, it's, it's and that's not meant to sound esoteric, right? There's lots of very specific things we can get into about what that means. But ultimately, it's aligning need and resource much more effectively than we do today. Well, I, I like the way that you frame it up. And I know that it, it's hard to, to take something like that and uh, uh, define it in a way that can, you know, we, we can share in under 280 char- uh, 80 characters on Twitter or what have you. Uh, so that, that, that's good. And, and um, as we just said in the description and as I've shared, like I know that you're, you're willing to deep dive into the specifics sure. with us. I think one of your colleagues, Jennifer Hebert, has also chimed in uh, uh, looking for perspectives on, the ch- on challenges and uh, what, what we can address with value-based care. It all starts with money. Everything starts with money. And that's not a that's not a bad thing, right? People, you know, there's the old saying, people always say, you know, money is the root of all evil, right? Or the love of money is the root of all evil, right? That expression is actually a foolish love of money is the root of all evil, right? Mm. So we have to acknowledge that that finances, resources are what drives anything we do, right? I mean, that's just the, a reality. It's not good or bad. It just is, right? One thing that governments, health systems, 
businesses have all shown is that the central deployment of resources is really difficult, right? Meaning I have the resources and I'm able to anticipate where and when they're going to be needed. And just like with just-in-time delivery, I'm going to be able to make sure that whoever consumer clinician needs them is going to have access to these resources because I'm so good at distributing them. That's a challenge. The other thing we've learned, right, in looking at effective philanthropy, effective charity, um, is direct cash distribution is the most effective, and I think this is something near and dear to your heart, right, as you as you work with marginalized communities, Chris, direct cash distribution is something that terrifies policymakers, right, but has been shown to be the most effective means to empower people to positive outcomes. A lot of traditional payer management, original value-based contracting, a lot of very specific hoops to jump through that would kind of regulate when and how these value-based funds revenue, right, as you reference that five to 15% would get distributed, right? And again, we're really just not good, anybody, not just healthcare, at anticipating effectively where and when we need to send this money, right? Like, like not to go too far out, there's sort of why communist, communist economy is a difficult thing because central distribution of resources, even with great intents, is just very difficult. Um, because there's so many unanticipated things, right? So as we think about how to progress in, in, in that gap, it's how do we move from a model that's sort of patriarchal, right? And sort of tells providers the right way to use these resources and moves to empowering them to have access to the funds they need to make appropriate decisions about what their consumers need to remain healthy, right? So as we think about the risk levels, if, if I have a patient and they're healthy today, how do I ensure I use my preventive time with them to help them remain healthy? If they're healthy but at risk, their blood pressure is a little bit high, their blood sugar is a little bit high, how do I use my resources to help them get back to stable, right? And as we go, right, the, the interventions increase. But it's how do we make it as easy and intuitive as possible for the primary care physician and their supports, whether that's behavioral, whether that's front office staff, nurse practitioner, or medical assistant, to spend time discussing the issue of import with a member or provider or patient at any given time, right? The traditional model we all know incents a very specific kind of interaction, which only provides value from a revenue perspective when somebody's already sick, right? And so the gap is everything about our payment system our claim systems, our revenue cycle management, people's experience now, all us folks getting older who've been in healthcare for 30 and 40 years are geared around a fee-for-service model, right? And so there is there is trepidation, fear, appropriate concern in, in like really decoupling the flow of funds from that traditional chassis, right? So that's one, right? It's just, it's just Healthcare is very conservative and making a big leap forward in how we fund things is, is a challenge. Second, and, and this is one that's always really interesting when you get to, to conferences and it may elicit some responses. I heard Intermountain on there. Inter, Intermountain's a great partner and a great system, but they have the same challenge too. If you think about advanced primary care, the way the provider sees value at the primary care level, this can be true of behavioral too, is by removing overall cost from the system, but increasing their own revenue through two-sided risk, gain sharing, quality gate, all of those things they've built into advanced payment models. How does that work for a health system, right? Does a health system actually want their primary care to remove cost from the system? Because by definition, you're then removing top line revenue from the health system, right? So. An honest conversation needs to be, you can't just talk to a health system about changing site of service, reducing unnecessary care. What you really need to focus on is making sure that regulated space is treating members who require that level of care, right? So it's not removing their volume, it's not reducing their import to the community, but it's making sure the sickest and those services that really need to happen in a, in a facility setting occur there and moving those 
those more routine services. You don't need appendix, you know, you don't need appendectomies at academic medical centers. So, so that's there's sort of the the whole payment model in general that the industry is struggling with, and then there's sort of the realities about how different segments of the the healthcare environment make their money and the implications of of disrupting that revenue. A pretty inspiring definition uh, around hey, how do we make resources available in the right way that clinicians would want to be able to access them? How how do, how do we uh, empower clinicians to actually be able to uh, deliver the, the the type of care, the standard of care uh, that that they uh, believe will be the most effective. Uh, so w- one thing I just wanted to comment on that is um, this is this is going to be an upcoming episode. Uh, but we sat down with uh, Dr. Maria Koshi, who is the uh, chair of Chiefs of Psychiatry at uh, Permanente Medical Group. Early 2024, you should be seeing that sit down on hey. You moved from a fee-for-service environment to practicing within a value-based care environment. What are the realities and, and what do you do to help other clinicians make that transition? So uh, it, 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 I do like the fact that you went into uh, addressing like what is the clinician experience under the, like how, how does the payment model all, uh, go all the way down to adjusting the, the clinician's experience? I, I brought up earlier MGMA. Uh, describing that only five to fifteen percent of the revenues uh, it, in our healthcare system today are coming from value-based care uh, contracts, so it raises question, David, on uh, what does it take to to make value-based care be the pill that these types of organizations might want to swallow? So there's there's a few building blocks to that, I, I think. Right, one is. On the provider side, the health system side, there, there has to be a belief that they can win when more of their revenue is at risk, that, that the, the, the game is not stacked against them, right? And, and so a lot of that comes from we need to make sure we're excellent at basic partnership operations, right? So boring things like managing AR appropriately, providing accurate attribution, appropriately reconciling, managing and processing data appropriately, right? They're, they're just all these nuts and bolts things that have to occur for a provider to feel comfortable that the work they're doing is being fully recognized by the funding source, the payer, ASO, the, the employer group or whatever. Um, so, that, so that's one. Two, and this is not an insignificant one, um, you know, and some of these are very non-clinical answers, is capital needs to be available, right? Primary care in particular tends not to be particularly capital heavy, whereas payers and, and other funding sources that collect premiums or other types of upfront money can be more capital heavy, right? So it's how do you look at programs like the government's ACO reach and things like that that are looking to really bridge the gap between financer, capital holder, a risk-bearing entity and the clinicians, right, to make it possible for clinicians who have the motivation and the expertise um, to take on this type of risk to actually be able to do it from a, from an actuarial perspective, um, you know. And, and then I think again the third component, and this this becomes the the trickiest or the most difficult, I would say, is how do we include the entire value chain primary care, specialty, pharmacy, and inpatient in that collaborative value-based arrangement, right? Because it's only when you put all of that at risk that that you're going to see more of that, that funds flowing through. Because So if you think about that 5 to 15%, primary care only accounts generally for, you know, 5 to 7, 6 to 8% of all spend, Right. So even at 15%, it's indicating that the revenue is starting to move beyond just putting primary care fees at risk. Groups are starting to take on risk on behalf of those health systems. But at the end of the day, your, your very advanced groups, ChinMed, Oak Street, Agilon, right? They're taking on risk with the belief that they're so effective that even though they don't control the means of production all the way along the value chain, they can effectively manage it. Um, and so I, I think, you know, again, helping solve for health systems, how they're going to recognize true upside value in these relationships 
um, it becomes the most critical part. I, I can tell you most payers have an appetite for shifting a greater degree of revenue potential in, into that. But, but health systems, there's some debate about this, but I think overall, most people would agree hospital systems, health systems are not a particularly high margin business. So even to put a few percent of your overall top line revenue at risk can be really scary if you know you don't make more than a few percent margin on an annual basis. Yeah, uh, I, I love how we're getting specific in, in, into these models and, and funding flows. I, I want to get into some examples in, in a little bit as well. But I got a really interesting question uh, from uh, Hunter Ferment, who's a staff writer at Helio. And the question, I'm just going to read it verbatim. Uh, in a value-based care model, how do you prevent clinicians from prioritizing less risky patients and conditions in order to booster performance and success rate and earn more? And the, the reason I, I just wanted to go verbatim, like I was actually watching uh, Dr. Eric Bricker do a presentation a little bit earlier on incentive structures and, and how they influence uh, clinician decisions. So uh, I, I was really curious on, on your perspectives here. So one area you hear a lot about in, in various value-based payment models, you hear about a lot of it from the Congressional Budget Office and, and Medicare, is the concept of risk adjustment, right? Which is really accurate diagnosis capture, meaning uh, you the, the revenue, the capitation, there's, there's different types of revenue, but ultimately can be adjusted based on the disease burden of the member. Right. So if you only manage really healthy people, right, your baseline expense is going to be fairly low. Right. So it's a lot more difficult, theoretically, than to to reap value. Right. I mean, this this is not 20 years ago where you did saw a lot of what he's describing. Health plans have also gotten sophisticated at ensuring their partners don't cherry pick right which is essentially what we're talking about we want a robust risk pool and it's again how do i keep my healthy members healthy but by by being front loaded the revenue in a different way i can actually give more resource to those higher risk complex members where ultimately there's a greater opportunity for savings and a greater opportunity for revenue recognition if i diagnose code and then effectively manage them more effectively i mean even the most like if you take diabetes which tends to be what a lot of people talk about right diabetes and complex diabetes are two different things or diabetes with nephropathy are two different things and there are so many expenses for a health plan for the system and so many negative outcomes that can come from poorly managed diabetes right and in a traditional you know, 10 to 12 minutes with my patient, it's a lot harder to get in to those conversations with a complex member. But if I know that, that I am going to be recognized for really effectively helping this person eat better, understand why to take their medications, sort of understand the value of getting up and moving around so you improve circulation, like all of these things, there's just, there's a lot more value for each part of the system to recognize. Um, so the risk is, uh, getting back specifically to his question, is that you have, in where we kind of have to be fiduciaries as well, is you have a lot of organizations that are not quite as ready to risk those higher complexity members, or not quite as ready to manage them, who are excited about uh, value base, and also what you're seeing now in is our venture backed, right? And the venture community has now heard risk is a very exciting industry to be in, right? Risk based healthcare. So you have a lot of venture backed organizations who are getting into risk without maybe understanding how to manage it. So again, if 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 you were to go to look at how the daily flow of activity and the way offices are constructed and programs are constructed from the chin meds and the Allidades and Oak Streets and those compared to just sort of a traditional practice, 
you'll see the difference between a group that understands and is organized around managing complexity and those that are not, those that are primarily focused on fee-for-service activity. David, I'm, I'm, I got to go off script with you because uh, you, you brought up the investor community and funding for, for various organizations that like a, a lot of these decisions might be uh, somebody had a chat with someone and, and uh, start, started understanding risk and, and made some, some major decisions. And I think it would be helpful we, uh, to, to, the, to the people who are online right now, perhaps to talk about some examples where uh, that can go awry or, or how to suss out, like if there's some investor-backed entity that uh, can't put its money where its mouth is, basically. So I think, and, and I will rarely do this, I, I think I will avoid naming any, naming any players by name. So, so sorry for that. Um, but I think there's two specific areas where, where you're seeing a lot of challenge right now. One is the flow of investment into advanced primary groups that were born out of Southern Florida, right? Which has tremendously high, you have a lot of seniors in Southern Florida, right? It's just, we know that. So there's a tremendous high penetration of Medicare Advantage. So both members and providers are just really attuned to how the Medicare Advantage program works, right? So, so you see a lot more advanced primary care in Florida. So they're getting high revenues, high degree of risk, really successful in a differentiated type of model, what you've described, how do we get more revenue flowing through, uh, through the actual value-based contract? Other markets are not as mature as South Florida. So the idea or the risk is, do these groups that are really successful in South Florida port effectively if you start growing into other markets, right? And so what you're seeing is a whole lot of groups have been successful in Florida a smaller number of groups have continued to show they can be equally effective in other markets that have less value-based penetration, less Medicare Advantage um, penetration. So that's sort of one bucket is, is sort of, can you arbitrage from highly mature markets to less mature markets effectively? It's possible, but you genuinely need to be competent in this work. The other area where there's a lot of excitement around value-based care right now um, and this is separate from virtual and telehealth, which we'll get it, which we can get into a little bit if you want, but it's home-based services. During COVID, during the pandemic, there was a tremendous amount of excitement around home-based delivery of care. And there is definitely an appetite for that. But the reality is a lot of venture flowed into companies that hadn't actually proven out the, the economic model of home-based care, right? It's, it can be very difficult to get the per unit economics of, of visits in the home um, to, to, to be EBITDA positive. So right now what you're seeing is, is kind of in both of those pockets now is the investment community sort of catching their breath and saying, yep, we're, we're actually now not quite as comfortable that these are areas we can really be successful in. What do we do? And then also what's real? Right. Because what I don't want to suggest is, is that there are not some very effective, very mature organizations in the marketplace that do this well. Um, it's just it's hard work. Right. Like the kind of care we're talking about takes care teams. Right. It takes collaboration with community, with family. We think whole health. Right. So a lot of times with behavioral depending on the situations, um, understanding SDOH and health equity needs, right? So these are also, when I say I, I, I like to demystify value-based care, no, depending on the needs of the consumer, of, of your patient, there's very specific things they need, right? To, to have a positive outcome or as positive an outcome as po possible. They're just different for different members, right? So that's why you need a trained, clinician class who's interested in this kind of work. And in the tough part is Chris is and curious, right? Like they're curious, how do I create this mechanism to understand how to get the resources I need, right? Cause I can't just, I'm not making enough money as a fee for service behavioralist or primary care physician to fund all this stuff. I need somebody to help me fund it. 
but they'll only do that if I can really effectively use it as needed to help with the, the outcomes, right? Because the interesting thing and what is genius about, about Medicare Advantage is when, when you think about quality programs, you're half based on actual outcomes, you're half based on your member's perception, right? So, I mean, it really is not only are you delivering what's needed, it's are you also doing it in a way that, you know, your customer feels good about, which it's sort of ingenious if you think about it. It makes it, makes it an incredibly complex business to be effective in, but, but it was really ingeniously set up by the government. You don't say that well, very often, um, but this case <laughs> is true. I'll, I'll say demystify uh, doesn't mean debunk. And uh, we, we were, it, when you raised the, the, the point about inexperienced investors and solutions and things like that, it just made me feel uh, for anybody who's like having to suss out, like I, I was at a conference and I heard somebody had evaluated 500 different uh, tech vendors. So it made me feel for anybody who is, is having to go through all that, like just identify some, some things to filter. Well, one rule of thumb that that is uh, is a mantra for me, right? I'm not saying everybody should agree with this or, or this is how they do it. But to your point, as you as you go to these conferences and there's all these booths set up for, you know, very specific things, right? So there's a there is a HEDIS measure for diabetic uh, retinopathy screening, right? So there are companies that have come up specifically because health plans PCPs don't do that great on their own. It takes a specific piece of equipment. You need training, whatever. So send people into the homes to do diabetic retinopathy screenings. If NCQA were to change that as a HEDIS measure tomorrow, all of a sudden the funding sources for a diabetic retinopathy company would dry up, right? So, so when you look at investment, I bias towards platform companies or engagement companies a little more than solution companies, right? So thinking what's most important is that I'm really good at engaging members in the home, right? Like I've got a primary competence of, of reaching, communicating with, and um, getting alignment with my customer that, that it makes sense, it'll be valued to invite me in the home to do anything right? If I have that core competency, if I have that platform ability, the content can be changed. The program can be changed. If my primary value is that I do the specific activity in the home really effectively, if either I'm not great at getting in the home or if the utility or value of that specific activity changes over time, all of a sudden my whole value proposition is significantly in jeopardy. Right. So, so as, as you think about these hundreds, that, that is where I spent. And, and so one of the things, you know, you would, these, these talks go so, so fast, but we've talked about a little bit is where digital comes in. Right. And, and so to me, you, you, one of the things you may have picked up at the beginning, I said, is, is that knowledge is available for clinicians. Right. We don't always know what knowledge is going to be important as times change, depending on the needs of, of the patient. Right. But it's do we have platforms to deliver the most salient information to a practice, to a care manager, right, in service of caring for that member? So it can be as tactical as, as we go out and sort of user experience, right, meet with as many PCPs as we can on what their needs are. One of the things we hear, particularly for independents, is less of an issue for health systems, is we refer our patients out for specialty care and never get anything back. Right. We don't know what the diagnosis, the outcome was. So one thing, you know, one thing that, that I found is where payers get all of this information, the ability to deliver back to the primary care physician who referred out information on that specialty visit. Right. So very specific. Right. But then through health risk assessment and other things, we may also get more general information about potential food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, language, gender, ethnicity concerns, marginalization that may be impacting or potentially impact the health of a, of a new member who's joining your practice. And so to the degree we can help prepare a practice to create a home for that member on the full spectrum of their needs, that's really valuable, right? But 
to, to, to be an organization that very specifically solves just one aspect of that, there's, there's a lot of risk there because just the environment changes quickly and, and who we look for to provide certain services, be it government, social services, or a, a payer entity changes a lot. So um, kind of a soapbox issue for me, but I get really excited about effective platform and engagement companies, right? So I'm going to steal a question for you from you so that and where this becomes really exciting to me, right? A platform, right? Company and engagement company is as a behavioralist. What I know is when you can address, right? Uh, a behavioral or substance abuse concern adjacent to an activating event. Think a car crash while drunk driving, a suicidal gesture, um, you know, a prolonged depressive episode that's made it difficult to manage daily activities or put work at jeopardy. That is when a member is, is most likely to become activated and actively engaged with the, with the behavioral uh, environment. What we know is that there's a dearth of effective behavioral care in most communities. And so by the time frequently somebody is actually able to access the care they need, they're not as adjacent to that activating event, there's less motivation, right? So one thing that we spend a lot of energy in, um, and you had mentioned a colleague of mine, Dr. Polo, who's at Caroline Behavioral Health, right? Something that, that they're very passionate about as we think about whole health is how do you create platforms for primary care clinicians to link, use digital tools to almost have on-demand access to behavioral care? Right. So that when a member's in that physician's office saying, I've had these these thoughts of self-harm that maybe don't, you know, they don't meet the suicidal lethality action plan definition of right of an active risk. Most primary care physicians default is going to send you to the ER if they hear anything about self-harm that send you to the ER when that's not necessarily what's needed. And that's not where you're going to get the best care. Right. If they could in that office connect somebody using digital tooling to a behavioralist who can appropriately assess them and then initiate the treatment relationship process, just you're going to see all kinds of outcomes really accelerate in, in success for both medical care, not just on the behavioral side. You're going to see the impact across the entire spectrum of, of health. Honestly, I, I've, I've definitely seen a variant of that where uh, one th one thing that you brought up, uh, and I bring this this up pretty regularly, is that 70, uh, 70 to seventy five percent of uh, behavioral health challenges and issues present in the primary care setting. So you have this the, the one scenario where oh, there's nothing I can do except send you to the ER, versus having a solution, having a platform, having a network available. That is very much a difference between a, uh, a satisfied physician who feels that they can operate at the top of the, their license and uh, offer up evidence-based solutions, you know, vetted by the organization as well, uh, for a, a patient to have uh, for, for something that they weren't specifically trained on, but, but something that can, that can offer help in that moment of need. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right, I mean, these are, these are highly motivated, highly intelligent, highly trained individuals. It cannot feel good for your recourse to simply be go to the ER, right? Like that can't feel good. You know, it's like, you know, I, I manage large teams within Elevance and I'm like, you know, when you see a ball on the ground, you pick it up, right? It doesn't mean you're responsible for putting it in the goal, right? But it's your responsibility until you hand it off to the person who's going to. And so think about the satisfaction that gets created by giving that primary care clinician a resource to know there's been an effective handoff of this, right? I'm not just kind of generically directing my, my patient. I'm genuinely connecting them with the right resource, right? I can go home and feel good that I did something effective. You know, I just, I, it's those little kind of tactical things that I believe will add up. And it's the same for, think about if a physician has a food voucher, right? or things like that. And so somebody comes in and is hungry or is not getting medication because they can't afford the copay. 
and we have given, and I don't necessarily have answers for all of these, so, um, you, you know, this is more conceptual, but we have given a primary care clinician the ability to solve that very specific thing that just common sense and intelligence is telling them is going to impact their patient's health. I, I, my father was a primary care physician, and, and I mean, he had kind of, in a small town, not value-based, you know, that over time he had sort of given up on the counseling aspect of, of sort of more SDOH things, largely because he would say, well, just, you know, folks weren't changing, you know, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, you need to stop smoking or, you know, you need to eat better. Well, the reality is most of us know that if you smoke, you know, it would be better not to smoke. If you have poor eating habits, you generally know that just being told it isn't helpful. What's helpful right, is to be given sort of help get out of the starting blocks. And I think primary care physicians, to your point, they've been trained highly to treat very specific things. It's unfair to expect them to solve the others, but they are the bridge, right? They're, they're the, the point of entry into a lot of other opportunities with that consumer, member, pay, depending on where you sit, you know, that it, it, you say it's something else, but ultimately they can still be the initiant of good care for that member around STOH, around health equity. Ideally, we're starting to get a little bit smarter around, again, issues of marginalization and how they impact care and, and people's willingness to access the system. But a lot of it does come down to, right, how do you encourage, empower, and then I will say, ultimately, once financing becomes involved, expect primary care to, to start moving in this direction. When your father was uh, addressing or, or having communications around things related to SDOH that, that he couldn't necessarily solve for, it kind of made me think about uh, these physicians who want to operate at the top, uh, operate at the top of their license, uh, knowing and seeing perhaps a lot of the times the same patients rolling in with with similar issues and we know that the uh that, that what needs to to address might be housing related or uh related to, to to something else around SDOH that that they can't necessarily solve for so it does uh start to to it it it, it puts a powerful lens on how do we start solving for the thing the, the, the things that we know are problems how do we start identifying what those challenges are and, and identifying solutions to do that um, but I, I guess the, the, the lens and, and where we can take this now, because it, sadly, we, we, we've got one minute left in our official time. Um, I'd, I'd really like for you to talk about like no, knowing that there are people who are passionate about these issues and and wanting to solve these these challenges. And, and we, we can see some of the very obvious benefits around value based care. But what have been some of the roadblocks organizationally that you've seen? Uh, in, in attempting to expand that value-based care footprint? Like what, what are some, some things that people can focus on from like a peer and leadership perspective to be able to, to, to climb these hurdles and, and expand the, the footprint of this uh, type of model? So I, I think one, and maybe the most important, is getting varied experience, right? Is, is if you're on the provider side, right? there's a lot of frustrations you have with your clients or with you know your patients or with your payers because you maybe don't understand why and how some of the things they do work. The same is on the payer side, right? Building these relationships with primary care physicians can be difficult if you don't really understand primary care and what life is really like in a provider's office, right? And even for those people who have historically a lot of that expertise, right, is around RVU payment model, right, is around looking at inpatient trend and managing ER, all things that are really important, right? But we haven't been as experienced at looking at primary care, looking at behavioral and the importance they bring, because in and of themselves, they're much less expensive, right? Paying for primary care behavioral health on a unit cost basis is much less. So... You know, I think it's it, like without being trite, it's having this kind of conversation at a at a health plan level. It, it, you mentioned one of my colleagues on the phone, Jen, Jen Hebert. I knew she was going to be on today because we happened to be meeting today on some issues, you know, relative to um, access and availability for our members. The default people very quickly get into conversations about 
the access for primary care, that's not really what the challenge is. It's around specialty care and some benefit design, right? And, and things like that, dental networks. Um, and, and so it's, it's really understanding the problem. So moving away from the generic tenants of value-based care, I need a diabetes managed program. I need a call center that has clinicians calling out to care manage people they don't know to understanding on a more granular market level basis, what is causing poor outcomes in this area. Some zip codes, very little of it has to do with housing or food instability, right? In other areas, that's going to lead almost everything. English as a second language could be an issue. So, I mean, so, I mean, I do think ultimately it's, it's, and I was never a consultant, I swear, but this is going to sound like it, right? It's how do big plans use the leverage they have, the resources they have at an enterprise level? So think about us and, and you know, our, our primary partners in the market, but still be nimble enough, like I said, to not make it all centralized distribution, to get the resources where they need to be and the decision making, right? at the same place the resources are to be able to be nimble, to be quick and to be sort of what I call kind of agile operations, right? To, to make decisions in the moment, address them quickly if they're the wrong decisions. Um, but I mean, I, I think ultimately a lot of it is, is, is what I'm getting at. And perhaps as much, you know, because of what I do now is a lot of it has to do with execution, right? Like we understand the levers of better health. Right. I mean, we are you could you could find ad nauseum white papers on what will lead people to be healthier. Right. And a lot of it's common sense. So then it's what is it about the execution of helping clinicians help their patients take these actions that we haven't quite solved for? Well, um, I if, if I'm going to take two words from uh fr from your description there be specific is really powerful for me uh just because once you start going into the nuances of uh like you have an entire population but what about this subset and what about the people who are impacted by uh this diagnosis versus that versus that diagnosis like once you start peeling the layers back and being more specific you have more targeted ways to to find things that fit for the, the individuals that make up that population. It's, we're not just a whole, we're not just, uh, we're, we're not some uh, blurry blob uh, that, that's all the same. Um, but given that, uh, D David, I know we're, we're close to time, but there's something that we ask every, every guest and what we do is we give you a superpower. That superpower is to be able to change any one aspect of how healthcare is delivered. So if given that magic wand and, uh, of course, drawing from your experience as a clinician and as a uh, leader within healthcare plans and value-based spaces, what would that magic wand do? Uh, it, it would eliminate the fee-for-service model, right? Well, it does actually, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go one step further than that, right? And, and this is, this is one of sort of the nerdy things for me. I would eliminate employer-sponsored healthcare, Right employer-sponsored healthcare, which is a remnant of, of compensation caps during World War II. It was a benefit that was created to try and attract attract employees from other companies, right? That, that's really the genesis of employer-sponsored healthcare. We would get away from that because really what we've gotten to is subscription healthcare, right? It's not really insurance anymore. And we've so decoupled the patient from the funding of their care that it, it, as long as you have employer-sponsored healthcare, it is never going to be real economics in the sense of people making rational decisions about the utilization of resources. So we're not going to be there anytime soon, and that's a really extreme version of it. And employers can still very much be stewards of that. I was talking to a company um, not too long ago who um, they help employer groups create very tailored um uh work with very tailored identify them on the exchanges right so so say if, if you're a if you're an employer or a group of employers the example they use because of the specific conversation i was in who has a sort of a, a, a fairly large um group of of trans or even lgbtq 
um, employees, some of the specific needs and the clinicians they're comfortable engaging with might be slightly different than the overall population, creating an exchange product, right? That is specifically designed around the needs of the LGBTQ and trans community, right? So, so it, it, there's a lot of different things in terms of benefit design that go in that, right? That, that may be attractive. And so I don't think eliminating the employer's role in, in sort of driving some of that just because the employer is a natural aggregator. But I, but I do think thinking differently about how we look at the employer as the provider of benefits, right? And I, I would say that your, your call, even, even though like, because it's a magic wand, it's something that can't happen uh, instantly overnight, but it, it is at least a, a wake up call uh, to the role of our employer, uh, our employer relationships, our healthcare, and even do we even know what our salaries are? Like what what goes into to compensating us? Like there there's all kinds of things that are hidden and obfuscated about our our entire uh, compensation model. And I can't take credit for uh, being clever enough to have, ha having thought of that. There's a a, a uh, TikToker, a uh, doctor that I follow, uh, Dr. Glockenflecken, uh, that, um, have you heard of him? I, I haven't, but the concept of, of actual compensation versus what you take home is, is, you know, a concept near and dear to me. Thank you very much, David. Uh, thank you. Big thank you for your time today. And for those who didn't get quite enough time, uh, what's the best way for them to follow you online? Um, I am a bit of a Luddite. Um, mainly because I worry I'd say stupid things if I was on too many different social media platforms. So through LinkedIn, I'm easy to reach through LinkedIn. That's, that's I'm boring enough. That's my primary social media platform. All right. I, I know that this conversation went really deep, really fast with regards to value-based care, and it might have left some people confused. Well, we were focused on people who are already operating within that value-based care context uh, and might be trying to overcome certain challenges and hurdles for growth of these types of contracts. But we also have a conversation that went more uh, basic. We spoke with the chief operating officer for Orlando Health's South Seminole Hospital. His name is Antoine D. Williams, and he had some powerful first principles thinking, very basic thinking about how to best explain and grow value-based care initiatives from the ground up. Uh, we're popping that video up on screen, but if you can't find it, just look up value-based care for dummies on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts.